Welcome to the Transport Hub Podcast, a podcast series created by the Transport Research Hub at University College Dublin. I am your host, Porik Carroll. This podcast series seeks to disseminate research, industry innovations, and policy in the area of transportation and mobility. Hello and welcome to the Transport Hub Podcast. Today I'm joined by Ashling Dunn, who is Head of Public Policy for Bolt Ireland. So I'll just give a brief introduction to Ashling first before we start. So with a background in law and legislative process, Ashling spent four years in the Department of Transport as a policy advisor to the Minister, advising on sustainable and active travel projects and building consensus across all stakeholders. Ashling subsequently worked in the Strategic Transport Advisory Services in in Europe on a series of key transport projects for state agencies such as Transport Infrastructure Ireland. Then in uh, September 2021, Ashling joined Bolt as Head of Public Policy with a responsibility for supporting a shift towards uh, more sustainable transport solutions, ensuring Bolt's offering is compatible with national and local government priorities and delivering safe and sustainable transport for both drivers, passengers, cyclists, and all other road users. So I'm delighted to have Ashley with me today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Just maybe to start with by outlining your role in Bolt and what it involves on a daily basis, maybe. Yeah, of course. So um, as you mentioned there, I'm head of public policy uh, here in Ireland for Bolt. So uh, Bolt is a company that is across 45 countries. uh, And in each country, we have, I suppose, tailored our offering to what the country needs, uh, kind of what gaps there are in the the transport offering. Um, So in Ireland at the moment, we provide uh, taxis services. We're a dispatch operator for taxi services in Dublin and Cork and we also provide e-bike rentals. So that's short-term rental. I think on average most of our journeys are between 10 and 12 minutes Um, and we provide that in Sligo, Kilkenny, Wexford, Bray and uh, we have some further expansion coming in the next month or two. So um, it's it's I suppose less than what we provide in other countries. So in in, you know our full range of offering is um, e-bike rental, e-scooter rental, car sharing, um, and then ride hailing, as well as food delivery and grocery delivery. So at the moment, uh, we have uh, just some of our offerings here, and I'm involved in kind of the day-to-day of engaging with stakeholders, both at a local government level to discuss kind of the needs for that um town or city, uh, see if there's something that both can do to improve their kind of transport connectivity, Um, looking at initiatives to make sure that these new schemes are, you know, embraced by the public, are done in a responsible uh, and sustainable way so that there are no kind of negative effects. Uh, We've all heard an awful lot about street clutter, um, which I'm sure we'll touch on again. But so kind of engaging a lot with local stakeholders and local government. um, And then also uh, a lot of my work is with national government. So the regulator, the NTA, obviously their their role um, over sort of everything that Bolt does, whether it's on the, the taxis dispatch side, on the e-bikes, the future of e-scooters, and trying to figure out if, you know, the, the new regulations uh, that are coming in will work, will actually help to deliver a modal shift and will also be a sustainable business for uh, for operators such as Bolt. So I suppose that's that's a bit of a nutshell of what I do. Great. So I mentioned there in the introduction, so you joined Bolt in 2021. So how, how did you get to this position? Maybe if you can outline your, outline your career to date. Yeah, well, it was a little bit varied. Um, so I started out, I uh, studied law uh, and then qualified as a barrister uh, and worked down in the four courts and more so in the criminal courts for about five years. Um, and then decided that I wanted a change, uh, wanted to get more involved in policy uh, and kind of figuring out how our country gets run and uh, legislation, then maybe being on the coal face of, uh, of criminal defence work. So I started with um, a TD working for a member of the Dole and then uh, he became the Minister for Transport, Tourism and Sport back in 2016. That's Shane Ross. Uh, and so then I was his um, policy advisor for his four years in the department. So um, I suppose I went into the department more with a legal background, legislation and a politics background, uh, less so a kind of transport um, background. But I absolutely loved it. And I just think it's the most interesting and um, engaging area 
there's just so much going on. There's so much potential and it has such an important role to play in our future, in our carbon emissions, in supporting our economy. Like, yeah, transport is something that uh, caught my caught my imagination. Uh, and so I've been uh, working in that area ever since. So then went into Arup after I left the department and then moved into Bolt two years ago. It's great to have people with your expertise in transport, actually, because it's such a multidisciplinary field and we don't need just civil engineers or transport engineers we need people from public policy from social science and, and law obviously so it's it's great to have people with your expertise involved in this area so with micromobility it has the potential to revolutionize short to medium distance transportation but how does bolt see e-bikes and e-scooters contributing to reducing congestion and promoting sustainable urban mobility i mean they're essential but uh i i think you know, I had a conversation with somebody in the Department of Transport a few months ago about the future kind of strategy for e-bikes and e-scooters. Uh, and they said, you know, we're looking at road user pricing. We're looking at public transport investment and reducing cost of, of public transport. You know, some of the, the fare decreases for younger people. We're looking at, um, you know, congestion charges potentially for city centres. And they were like, and we're looking at how do we get more people onto scooters and bikes? We have to do everything. So I don't think that, you know, e-bikes and e-scooters are the silver bullet, the only thing that will result in a uh, carbon emission reduction from our transport sector. Absolutely not. I'm not that naive or um, foolish, but I think they are an essential part of what is a big picture and a big project that needs to be undertaken and that I think the government at the moment is really trying to address. Um, And and I think the e-bikes and e-scooters are essential. So... From our perspective, like one of the first markets that we launched e-bikes in Ireland, Sligo, is a place with a university three kilometres outside the town. Um, A lot of students who either don't have their own private cars, um, but want to be able to connect into the the kind of town city centre area. Um, And we have found that the bikes have just been essential for them and have been um, so readily embraced. Uh, and they're, you know, some of our biggest users are, are, are coming from and, and to the university. So it's not that, oh, they don't need buses up in Sligo. Absolutely not. But there's an awful lot of use cases that either they want the flexibility, they want to be able to go at that exact moment and not have to wait 30 minutes. Um, they want to be able to go from A to B and maybe the bus service only, you know, goes around the town, doesn't go into the town. It's just... Uh, a really great tool for helping to give people options and, and opportunities in tandem with other public transport and sustainable transport options. Anything that gets people out of the private car is is really where we need to be moving towards. So as this landscape of micromobility evolves, how, do, how would Bolt differentiate itself from maybe other e-bike or e-scooter sharing platforms? So is there any unique features or approaches that Bolt would take or bring to the table? It's a good question. So there are a lot of um, kind of micromobility operators out there. I do think that number is decreasing. Um, You know, in the last year or two, it's been very tough market uh, for operators. And we have seen some consolidation. And I think we'll see more of that in the coming months. But Bolt is unique, I suppose, because of the range of of services it offers. So our mission is to help make cities for people, not cars. And once we committed to that mission, it became more than just ride hailing and scooters. Um, So obviously there's e-bikes as well and there's food delivery, grocery delivery and car sharing. And the idea is that all of those mixed with public transport and walking really cater for every single use case you have. And I think the fact that we provide all that through one app for people who live in cities where Bolt is operating that full range of services, it's very easy. It's very convenient. They don't have multiple apps, multiple credit cards, you know, putting in credit cards, getting different bills. Um, And also we can nudge people from one um, mode to the other. So we did some research last year with the Toy Norwegian Institute of Economics and um, looked at how we could influence or encourage people to move from, you know, taking a short journey on a ride hailing, uh, you know, in a car to maybe using an e-bike or an e-scooter. Because we have that full range of options all through our app, when somebody tried to, you know, in our test cities, when they tried to book a car to go from A to B and if it was you know, under four or five kilometres and there were e-bikes or e-scooters nearby, we would instead say, 
do you know you could do this take this journey for this price savings for yourself uh, and not using a car uh, and we found that in different cities it had different effects but up to 60% of journeys that we prompted were were nudged towards a more sustainable mode so there's really cool things that you can do when you have a range of uh, services all through one app all under your control and um, so I think that's one of the big distinguishing features for Bolt but other than that I would say um, I really think a, a, a big feature of our success is our commitment to um, it, it being affordable like you have to make it, it, it can't be cheaper for somebody to drive their car and park it in the town centre. If you're doing that, you're doing something wrong. And I think some cities across Europe have found that, you know, a scooter journey is five, six euro for, for a relatively short journey. That's that's just not going to get people going from driving the car, sitting in a bit of traffic, paying three euro for car park and going doing their bit, doing whatever they need to do, go for lunch, do whatever, and then get back in the car. You need it to be affordable so I suppose because um, you know Bolt is that has that range of services and might already have a presence in the city if we can keep things affordable we can encourage people to use them if we can encourage people to use them we're getting them out of their cars so um, obviously safety is the number one priority but after that I think affordability and availability um, and that's something that we try and do so you know some people thought we were kind of mad suggesting that we should bring in 100 e-bikes to Sligo saying it's a very small place really 100 e-bikes surely 10 or 20 would be enough but again if you don't have sufficient commitment and volume of 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 bikes then I think people can't rely on it they can't trust that if they leave their car at home or they don't buy that car or they you know that they'll definitely be able to get a bike at the time they need it so I think both is committed when we make a commitment to a city or a town and we go for it we want to make the service affordable and we want to make it available and we think that really helps support people relying on it and migrating towards its utilization and i think that is a a key distinguishing feature of ours so you mentioned sligo there and maybe you can comment on this question in in the context of sligo so integrating e-bikes and you know also e-scooters maybe in the future into urban environments uh, i think we both agree requires requires careful planning so how does Bolt collaborate with cities or local communities or authorities to ensure um, that their deployments are responsible in the context of micromobility? I mean, it's, it's definitely the number one priority for when we're launching somewhere is our engagement with the council. So we don't launch somewhere without an express, you know, invitation, uh, either a license to operate or having successfully been chosen as a result of a, you know, a tender or a proposal. Um, and and with that comes a, a lot of ongoing engagement with the council. So initially deciding where parking locations are going to be. So while Bolt in other cities might have free floating e-bikes or e-scooters because of kind of wider paths and, and more open spaces in Ireland, based on how most of our towns and cities are, are created or are structured, um, we don't believe the free floating works here. Um, so what we have is mandatory virtual parking locations. Um, ideally, we'd like them on nearly every street, you know, every 150, 200 metres to, to support that kind of convenience factor for, for the user. Uh, in reality, it's more like every two to 250 metres. Um, but we those locations are controlled via geofencing. We agree them with the council. We try to link them up with bus stops, residential areas, business areas. We engage with local businesses as well, like hotels, shopping centres, to get virtual parking locations on their grounds. And, and we do that to create a network of parking so that it is convenient for users and and that they can be responsible and not litter or create street clutter. And that's obviously a number one priority for the council and and, and for us. So that's probably the like first piece of a kind of engagement that we do with them. Um, And then on on a monthly basis with councils, we provide them with a data report showing them heat maps, showing them times when when bikes are in demand, showing them um, kind of routes. Obviously, anonymous data, nothing specific to individuals, but but trying to help the council understand the needs and the transport needs, which then informs kind of their future transport planning. It it has supported their applications for active travel funding to the NTA. Um, so, I like we see ourselves as partners with the council. Um, supporting them being able to then apply for you know improved cycling infrastructure is 
an absolute no-brainer for us. It's brilliant for the town. It's potentially brilliant for our service down the road as the infrastructure improves and more people, uh, you know, get into cycling and, and using scooters. So um, engaging with the council is an ongoing process. And I suppose... Like, you know, you even have individual examples like um, the air show was on in Bray two weeks ago. Um, and that was going to result in an awful lot more people around Bray. Um, so we, you know, we talked with our council, our operations manager, um, engaged with the council around how can we change the speed zones in and around the the promenade and, and the front section of Bray where the, the larger crowds would be to make sure that, you know, bikes weren't, traveling too fast so we lowered them down to an eight kilometer which is like a fast walk so that people could get through if they needed to go from a to b um but at a very slow pace so that there'd be no um potential you know interaction with pedestrians uh we also introduced things like um happy hour uh which is uh reducing the price of renting the bikes in certain sections. So we wanted to get the bikes out of the crowded area and back out to to help people get in. Um, so if anyone took the bike for a cycle from kind of the promenade area or the, the key uh, busy areas, they'd get it half price. So there are loads of small things you can do, small tweaks by engaging with the council, understanding their priorities, understanding events coming up, issues um, that we can do to, to make the service work well for the town uh, and in partnership with council. So you touched on this before then in terms of balancing convenience with responsible usage is, is obviously important for, for these types of services. Um, what kind of measures would Bolt take to encourage safe riding behaviour and and prevent issues like you mentioned before, si- sidewalk or footpath clutter? Yeah, um, so we do a few g- good things and you know other operators do them too. So it's, it's not like Bolt is the only one, but, but some of them are, are unique to us. So. Um, I think uh, beginner mode is a is a useful kind of safety tool and um, that we certainly have had uh, on, on all our scooters and e-bikes for people who are first time users um, and it reduces the speed to 15 kilometers, whereas normally um, the max speed is 25 kilometers, although that is, you know, subject to engagement again with the council certain zones they might want slower um but ordinarily it's a max of 25 but when you're a beginner and you're using a scooter or bike for the first time it'll be set at 15 kilometers to just give you an opportunity to get used to it and then after however number of journeys you feel comfortable you can switch off beginner mode and and resume or or start using it up to its normal max speed um we have a, a good one that I think a lot of people don't know about, uh, and that's cognitive reaction testing. Um, it's kind of like our version of a drink driving test. Uh, and so we usually have it in place from 11 p.m. to 5 or 6 a.m. If you try and rent a bike, uh, you will have to chase a helmet around the screen in a certain amount of seconds. And if your reactions are slow, we suggest that you find another method of getting home. Obviously, you know, these things aren't perfect. There is no kind of, per- even for cars, there is, you know, no kind of drink driving test that in steering wheels, there are some that have tried and, you know, there is no perfect model to it. But what we're trying to do is encourage people to be responsible and remind them that if they've had a few drinks, getting on a bike or getting on a scooter is not the best way to go about it. Um, so that's, I suppose, some of the safety features. We have things like tandem rider detection. So if you have two people on a scooter, we can detect that, that shift in balance and weight um, and alert the user that we know they've done it and that if they do it again, they won't be able to continue with our service. So people talk about, you know, scooters are um, a new innovation and are they dangerous or are there safety concerns with them? But I think the rate of change and the rate of introduction of kind of safety features that the shared operators can bring in is really unbelievable. And so I do think you're not comparing like what like when you talk about you know private individuals using a scooter that maybe they bought on the internet or you know they can't currently bring anywhere to get serviced because it isn't legal so none of the bike shops can legally service a scooter um, and doesn't have those kind of safety protections i think it's it's very hard to compare what we have at the moment and then people saying oh well, we shouldn't have shared scooter schemes or i'm not sure if i want that because it's night and day the difference between the two uh, and the safety features that you know can be can be utilized and in terms of safety features uh, I, I've heard before that some 
some operators are testing, you know, different technologies uh, to detect usage on on footpaths. Is that something you're also? Yeah, yeah, we are. We we've done one pilot and we're looking to do another pilot testing of it. It is really interesting work and it's really exciting where the technology is going. I don't think it's fully, you know, not I won't say it's not fully proven, but it's not fully there yet in terms of being absolute. This works in every city under every situation and should be mandatory. I would say we need to continue to test it. We need more investment in it because I think it is a really good innovation and I, I think it is one of the remaining, one of the few remaining serious concerns about scooters is them being used on footpaths. I mean, there's also concerns about cars driving up on footpaths or parking on footpaths. Sometimes I get a little bit defensive because people are like, oh, cyclists go through red lights. And I'm like, so do cars, you know, with much greater potential risk, uh, you know, to everyone else on the road. But um, no, I, I think pavement riding on scooters is definitely one of the biggest concerns and, and a potential safety risk. Um, and I think, you know, Luna, the Irish company, is doing great work in that area. It's a really interesting space. I just think that it's it's probably not completely over the line, finished, complete just yet. OK, so in terms of um, sustainability, environmental sustainability, micro-ability is often, you know, subject to debate about its environmental, uh, whether it's environmentally friendly or not. And maybe could you maybe discuss some of Bolt's efforts to make e-bikes and e-scooters eco-friendly and reduce their carbon footprint? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a really good question. Uh, I guess anything that gets, you know, if you it's not perfect yet. There's still more that could be done, but it's a very significant step in the right direction in terms of transport emission savings. So um, from our perspective, one of the things that we've been trying to do and, and we're hoping to do more of in the coming months is to survey our users to understand what are our e-bikes replacing. So are they replacing walking, which is less valuable in terms of carbon emission savings? Are they replacing public transport? somewhat of a concern I think from from some sectors um, within the kind of transport debate that actually e-scooters or e-bikes might cannibalise public transport but not actually get people out of their cars or are they getting out of their cars or are they getting out of you know like where are they coming from and and uh, so we we did some research around this just within a few months of launching in Sligo but we will be doing a, a more comprehensive survey of all our markets in Ireland in the coming months so I'll keep you posted on those results um, but what we found is that about what we found from our Sligo survey was that about 13 or 14 percent of our bike journeys were instead of private vehicle car journeys now I was a little bit disappointed when I first heard that I thought I expected it to be more. I wanted it to be 80%. And actually from engaging with people in the Department of Transport who were looking at this both on a national basis and also international basis, they said that's well in excess of what they'd be expecting to see, especially for a service that was only in its third or fourth month at the time of the survey. Um, And that anything above about a 7% uh, private car replacement was significant. So that reassured me. I but I am looking forward to to resurveying um, our users in Sligo in the coming months, and then also doing it in, in other markets to see has that uh, percentage increased. Anecdotally, I believe it has, um, and 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 that's kind of what the what we're hearing from from users, um, especially in places where we have that sufficient supply so there is a greater reliance and people are able to to really start using it as their main mode of kind of commuting um, and that it's in lieu of, of cars. But in terms of the sustainability of the service, you know, uh, the, the sc- scooters and bikes that we use are, are made to last for five to six years. Um, so a lot of operators talk about the longevity of their bikes, but you also need to look at, or their scooters, you also need to look at the distance being travelled. So if they're travelling a lot less kilometres, but they last a year longer, that's not really anything to write home about. Uh, so so that's something that we pride ourselves on, is that our, our estimations of longevity is based on a higher level of utilisation and therefore more car kilometers replaced um, so so the type of vehicle we use in terms of its longevity um, the fact that its parts can be replaced so you're not looking at you know one thing going wrong on a scooter and the whole scooter being um, kind of off the road and creating more kind of waste 
Um, the fact that our, our scooters and bikes are recycled, um, obviously uh, batteries are recycled. We're, we're signed up to the We Ireland uh, recycling process. Um, but there are definitely things that could be improved. So some of our services, our battery replacement are done via cargo bikes. And so the operator who's out doing that will be doing so on a cargo bike, but some are done by vans. And, and that's just the nature of um, the topography of the area, the need for potentially, you know, one or two bikes to be collected if there is a more serious problem wrong with it and needs to be brought back for repair. Um, so there's more work that could be done. Um, in different markets, we are at different levels of um, transition from the use of vehicles to the use of cargo bikes, the use of all EVs for our support staff, um, the use of uh, solar power for our um, warehouses where our batteries get charged. Like it's it's a process um, and there are commitments there in terms of where we'll be in five years time. We're not fully there yet, um, but it's something that we're dedicated to. Microability services can sometimes face resistance, as you might expect, from local communities uh, who may be against such uh, options. But how, how does Bolt engage with local residents uh, and business and businesses to address concerns and build positive relationships? I, I know you kind of already touched on this before, but maybe any of the concerns that you've that maybe have come up in the process of getting these things rolled out. How, how, have, how have you come, overcome those things? Um, well, I have to say, I think our model really works that we have in Ireland in terms of we never proposed free floating. It's not like we started out and then there was this um, backlash against bikes being everywhere. Um, we always were aware that in Ireland, given the the size of you know town centres and footpaths and and the needs of other road users, that a free floating model would just absolutely not work. So we never had the initial negative pushback that maybe you might have seen in some cities across Europe. Um, we've also been really lucky with I suppose some of the initiatives that we've trialed. So. An example is, you know, I talked about um, mandatory virtual parking locations. So some of those are kind of repurposed car parking spots. Um, some councils have been very willing to take away, you know, one parking spot on a main street, uh, which provides parking for 10 e-bikes. You know, that's a it's a nice metric. One one car space gone for 10 bikes. Um, but some have been um, bike stands. And I suppose one of the big pushbacks that we've seen in Ireland from shared bike schemes is that they use up um, parking stands, bike parking stands for other private bike users, and uh, you know you don't want to be you don't want to be discommoding other pedestrians. You don't want to be discommoding other cyclists, and you also obviously don't be um, causing difficulty for drivers. But it's it's not a good look, or it's not it's not a good outcome if other cyclists are finding your service frustrating, getting in their way, preventing them from cycling from A to B. That is the furthest place from where we want to be. Um, but I think some of the other operators have found that because there was a tethering requirement, so all all to date, until recently anyway, um, all the other shared bike providers available around Ireland had to be tethered to a bike stand at the end. So you might have some really popular ones at a dart station or at a, you know, attraction. Um, and if you find that an awful lot of people are renting bikes, cycling there, tethered, tethering to the bike stands and then a private cyclist comes along and there's nowhere for them to park their bike that's something that can really cause conflict even within the cycling community um so the fact that ours don't require tethering the fact that we use mandatory virtual parking locations and then also even where we have bike stands that we you know are, is a designated parking and there's to park up alongside and um, the bike stands don't need to be attached but just for orderliness put in there we can do things like control the number of bikes. So, for example, on the parade in Kilkenny, um, key location, very popular, lovely big bike stand at the end. But we didn't want it overrun with bolt bikes. So we set in a maximum number of bikes. So once there are five bikes parked there or eight bikes parked there, that parking location goes offline. So if you're a user looking to see where will I park this bike, that's no longer an option. And we'll only do that if there are other bike parking locations very nearby because we don't want to make it all of a sudden annoying for the user. But the idea is to try and reduce those sources of conflict. So that 
in itself had been a source of conflict for other operators in other parts of of Ireland. Uh, we sort of preempted that. That's one of the solutions. Um, the virtual parking bays in general kind of removed that potential source of conflict that, you know, other cities and in other countries have experienced with that street clutter. Um, I guess the, the cognitive reaction testing preemptively was trying to reduce the potential for people who had, you know, uh, who were intoxicated getting on a bike uh, and potentially causing damage to themselves or to someone else. Um, so I think we've preemptively done a few things, but also uh, we have really good engagement with local businesses uh, and the council uh, everywhere that we operate. And we're, we're constantly trying new things. So uh, in October, as part of uh, kind of the Freshers initiation up in ATU in Sligo, uh, we'll be running a Bolt Rider Academy. So trying to educate the new students on how to use the e-bikes, how to use scooters for the future, because, you know, whether it's privately or publicly shared, scooters are coming. We want to make sure people are aware how to use them and also how to be aware of them. Um, but primarily the e-bike service is there and being used by the students and we want to make sure the next uh, year of them uh, is is fully aware about kind of safety concerns. And we're doing that in partnership with uh, the council and the university. Um, so we're always looking for new ideas for how to like engage more with the community. If you have any suggestions, feel free, <laughs> let me know. Thanks, Ashley. So as you well know, public policy plays a crucial role in, in deployment of micro-mobility services. How have you and with Bolt uh, worked with policymakers and regulators to advocate for favourable policies to support the growth and sustainability of these services? It's something that I, I suppose we probably wish we could have done more of. Um, the legislation has been going on for, for some time. It's obviously now passed uh, and been signed into law. But I guess along with other operators, we have been trying to engage as much as possible, um, both with the department uh, and then more recently the NTA, who, who are in charge of kind of the, the strategy for the future of micromobility and shared mobility hubs. Um, and the Road Safety Authority, who have been responsible for kind of the vehicle standards. Um, and it has been slow. Um, and we have some remaining concerns. I'm not sure if you're aware of um, the draft regulations that have been sent to the European Commission uh, just there a couple of weeks ago. Um, so they followed on from the, the primary legislation, which gave the minister the power to regulate uh, PPTs, powered personal transporters. And then within a week or two of that being signed into law back in July, um, the department sent draft regulations giving more specificity on this to the European Commission for circulation to all other member states because they were bringing in kind of vehicle standards and there is a perception or there is a, a rule that uh, if you're bringing in vehicle standards, they could be deemed anti-competitive if, for example, they were very anti, you know, a French kind of approach to a vehicle or French standards. And um, so it's under the TRIS procedure, it's uh, it's gone to the European Commission, will be circulated to all member states and they have 90 days to respond. So we expect those regulations to be, if there are no objections to them, uh, to come into force later this year. And unfortunately, they still contain some things that I suppose the industry as a general uh, grouping would have concerns around. And that's specifically to do with weight. Uh, so the max weight that's been set um, is such that most of our scooters do not comply with. Uh, and it was done, we believe, um, because the minister was keen that private individuals wouldn't face a barrier of mandatory insurance um, if the weight of a scooter goes above 25 kilograms under the motor insurance directive, which is coming into effect later this year, uh, it would have to have motor insurance and be treated similar to a car. Now, obviously, that creates a big barrier. And the minister has been quite clear that he sees scooters more of a bike category than a motorbike or car category, uh, which is consistent with a lot of other European member states. Um, but because of this upcoming motor insurance directive, his view was that we needed to cap the, the weight of scooters at 25 kg so that they wouldn't uh, fall 
to being you know at risk of of the motor insurance directive and that barrier to to change the problem with that is uh, for the safer uh, you know more technologically advanced shared scooters they're all over 25 kg so I guess your question is you know how have we worked together or how have we all been trying to advocate we have but we have a pretty substantial issue with uh, potentially impacting the rollout of e-scooters, shared e-scooters in Ireland later this year or next year in that most of us are newest, you know, most sustainable, most safe, you know, all the the additional features that we kind of talked about. Um, most of those fall above the current mandatory maximum. So... We still have a bit of work to do. So then just a final question on micromobility before we move on. Um, so for first and last mile journeys, obviously micromobility has a big part to play there. Um, what would be your view in terms of how we could integrate better with pulley transport to enable this first and last mile opportunity? Yeah, I, there's some really good um, kind of trials and pilots uh, out there. A, an innovation that we did uh, and have been running in uh, Lisbon for the last year or two has been a kind of joint um, travel pass. So you can buy your bus or train pass from the the transport provider for X price, or you can pay an extra 15, 20 euro on your monthly pass and also have it include all your Bolt e-scooters and e-bikes. Uh, and the value of that it, it, you know, from from every perspective is clear. It's trying to make sure that you're linking up, that you're getting that first and last mile um, making it more likely that you will use public transport because you, you now have it all seamlessly on one card, less effort for you, for the user, cheaper, all good things. Um, so that's something that I, I think I'd like to see being rolled out into more markets. In general, I think you know, maybe it's very trite to say it, and I'm sure other people who, who you're interviewing will say the same, but like a mass platform is just so necessary. So it's something that Bolt is really eager um, to be a part of. Uh, where it is um, in, in cities that we operate in, we're eagerly, you know, either on them or trying to get onto them uh, shortly. Jelby is an example in Berlin. Um, but for as a user, I think the more seamless we can make uh, the whole transport or the whole journey, the better. So if you can make it that I can jump on my Bolt bike or my scooter, get to the train station, park it up, jump on the train, get to where I'm going, maybe take another one at the other end to get me directly to my destination. Uh, and all of that is seamless. I can see the timing. I can see the availability. Preferably, I can pay for the whole thing all through that one app. I think you have a much greater potential for um, helping people move. Things things need to be easy. You know, a car in your driveway is really easy. Um, if you're trying to get them away from that, you need to make it equally easy. Um, and so I think, you know, a mass platform, I know it's something the NTA is working on. Um, uh, and, and it takes time, especially if you're looking at next generation ticketing and, and trying to have that kind of integration of payment uh, and how it works and what percentages and, you know, like who pays for what. I get all of that is very complicated, um, but I would love to see it happen. And I think it's integral for really helping with that migration. So something I'm quite interested in is that the, the first mile, because, you know, as coming from your where you live to the nearest public transport stop and how how that first mile can work if there's not a, a station or stop for a micro-ability service close by. So, and, and also at the, at the other end, going, going home. So is that something that has been solved in other jurisdictions or? I, I mean, I don't want to say we're perfect, but I think it's sort of uh, nearly been solved in Ireland uh, with both. So something that we think is really important uh, when working with the council to agree the locations for these mandatory parking locations is not just that you pick kind of, you know, key um, public transport destinations um, or, or public transport hubs, the train station, the bus stops, all of that, uh, and work locations, but also residential areas. So you can't provide a service where somebody can pull up an e-bike outside their door or an e-scooter, because if that's the case, then you're back to street clutter and mess uh, and, and all of that. And also, you know, how many people live on that street? It's now down a rabbit hole and it's not getting used again until the next day. And that's not really a sustainable business model. However, the entrance to people's housing estates is a 
you know, if it's on a main road and you have a couple of hundred houses inside and yet you're able to get a bike right to the entrance of your estate, that's all of a sudden a pretty good deal. Um, so that's something that we work really closely with the councils is identifying areas that are, um, you know, built up residential areas, housing estates, but either if it's the full, you know, the front entrance to it or the side kind of side access into a housing estate, where is the best place that still has our mandatory parking locations on a main thoroughfare or a busy enough street so they're safe because also... Um, if you think about vandalism or potential kind of antisocial behavior in and around bikes, you don't want them in a very secluded area. So you do still want them on a main road, but trying to make sure that that location is at the entrance to housing estates to really help with that first and last mile. Great. That's great to hear. So now on ride hailing then, so ride hailing is obviously something that another service that Bold offers, but not in Ireland, but is also very popular in other countries. So ride hailing services arguably they've transformed urban mobility in certain instances and how would both see the future of ride hailing firstly and do you think it has a part to play in Ireland? Yeah I I do I I mean at the moment we provide taxi services or SPSVs uh, small public service vehicle um, dispatch operator services in Ireland Um, and I think that we probably have a, a gap uh, in our offering um, I'm one of the people who believes that taxis and ride hailing form part of like our public transport offering in that um, they are an essential tool for helping people to live without a private car so if you live in a city or a town that you can rely on public transport you can rely on shared mobility you can rent a car yourself so car sharing or, or car clubs um, and you can also get a taxi or a ride hail and that if you have all of those along with really good public transport and really good walking uh, uh, routes that you have every use case covered and then you don't need to own your own private car. It goes back to this mobility service idea again. You know. Exactly, exactly. And and the easier you can access all these different services um, and the more available they all are. So I think at the moment you would probably say in Dublin we have a real shortage of taxis um, the taxis we have are great and it's a really good service we don't have enough of them I, it isn't just an acute problem at you know midnight on a Saturday night I, I think we can all agree and I'm sure most people have experiences of trying to get a taxi at lunchtime on a Tuesday and not being able to do so so I, I do think we have a shortage um, and I do think there is a role to play for ride hailing I think most other European um, countries have it. I think we're only one of two countries that still doesn't. Um, and, and, you know, we used to have, I suppose, both taxis and hackney service. And a hackney service didn't do street work, it did pre-booked work. Um, and we don't have that anymore. And I think that's something that should definitely be explored by the NTA to see how can we both still provide a... a a very high level taxi service that is both sustainable for the user and sustainable for the drivers but also have a supplementary service ride hailing for pre-booked always pre-arranged journeys still with all the same safety standards um, but just to provide that additional uh, additional offering and I think that's all part of our kind of sustainable transport offering that we need for vibrant cities and towns. Um, so is this something is this an ongoing discussion or is, has been with other other operators as well as both with the NTA for example and the department yeah I, I mean every so often the department and even I believe the Taoiseach last year uh, Leo Radker made some comments about you know we have these kind of services in, in most other European cities why don't we have it here sort of out to the abyss not that he was going to resolve it there and then but just a, a question to be answered um, and it's certainly a question that we've kind of raised with the NTA and, and would like to have more discussions with them about um, you know there, there's a lot of issues surrounding, surrounding it they want to make sure that uh, you know that the passengers are protected and there's still tight control over fares and fare structure which I totally understand and that also there are taxi drivers who have you know this is their profession and they've been doing it for 30 years and if they see any significant changes to the regulations you know there's a concern an understandable concern that that could impact on their earnings and their livelihood so it's definitely a big conversation that needs to be had but an awful lot of other European cities have figured it out to make sure that there is a sufficient level of um, coverage and supply so that people can rely on you know it's the full I don't want to say tableau but the full um, range of 
of offerings and you need to have them all. And and I think that that's something that we don't currently have and we really need to start discussing. So do you think that rider hailing has a part to play then in terms of tackling traffic management or congestion or is it something that maybe is, is separate to this issue of of congestion. Yeah, no, I suppose sometimes people are like, ride hailing is still cars. So, you know, what, how would it help cities? And, and you know, if we're trying to be anti-car, then surely we're anti-ride hailing. And I don't agree with that. Um, I suppose the number one thing when you think about cities and cars for me is that 95% of privately owned cars, or sorry, privately owned cars are parked for 95% of the time. So, uh, and and that's that's true of me too. I had a car until about three months ago when it was stolen, and uh, it was parked at least ninety five percent of the time. I would maybe drive one evening a week, and then at the weekend, um, maybe one of the days, and the rest of the time it just stayed parked on my just outside the city centre street. Now that is a total waste of space. That is an area that could be turned into lovely cycle lanes because there'd be less cars there. That could free up space for the cars that do need to be there. Um, But I don't necessarily know, and I'm still in the midst of my trial of car free, three months on, I'm I'm trying it. Uh, I don't necessarily know if I fully can trust the available services to deal with every use case that I have, that I used to be able to rely on my car when when I couldn't get a taxi or when I couldn't get access to a car share, or I wanted to, you know, like there's just different use cases. And I firmly believe that ride hailing falls into the category of helping to support that shift and we need to have a reliable ride hailing and taxi service uh, and that gets more cars off the road, generally car ownership. So there is a kind of gap there in terms of a broader transport ecosystem where where ride hailing can fit in or should fit in, you, you believe? Absolutely. Definitely. I think it's um, it's long overdue in Ireland. There's, you know, different needs in different parts of the country. So in some of the more rural areas that have really no or limited public transport, certainly in the evenings at weekends, um, ride hailing is something that could really make a massive difference. Provide people who only want to work part time with a source of income, provide people who are facing social isolation with um, a means of getting to and from, you know, places that they need to go. Um, and there is a, a a good initiative from the depart- from the NTA, the local area Hackney license, to try and deal with some of those kind of use cases. Um, but I, I think there are barriers still to that in terms of insurance and, and other barriers. But I don't just think ride hailing has a role in rural areas, but I do think that's an area where it could really help. But I, I think in our cities, um, we need more than our current offering. We also need, like, there are things that ride hailing can do around dynamic pricing, which is encouraging drivers out at times when there might be low supply um, because there might be a bit of a surge in cost. Now, the downside to that is the cost has gone up for the user, but the upside is there's a lot more availability than would otherwise be there because the drivers wouldn't come out because it's two in the morning, but now they see that they can earn a bit more, so they will. Similarly, then you get really cheap journeys at times when there isn't that much demand and all of a sudden you're getting a real bargain trip. That So there's there's... Like, obviously, it needs to be discussed and it needs to be looked at, but there are uh, flexibilities and potential um, that I think ride hailing really delivers to a city uh, and to towns. And I think it's something that needs to be explored for Ireland. I'd, I'd actually also agree with that. Yeah. So then just some concluding remarks then. Uh, what are your thoughts then where micromobility and ride hailing markets are going and and how in general you believe they can influence sustainable mode shift in in, uh, in terms of travel behavior like what are your what are your thoughts on that generally speaking oh well on micromobility i think it is a really interesting time because i think there is um kind of a lot of moving parts um as we mentioned there's a lot of change in terms of like who the operators are and what services they provide I definitely feel that in the aftermath of the Paris referendum, I don't think it was technically a referendum, but the Paris vote, um, that there is a bit of hesitation. Oh, if Paris is removing scooters, do we want to remove scooters? I guess from my perspective, um, that was a vote by, I think, 8% of the eligible electorate turned up on a Sunday to, to vote on this. They are more than likely the 8% who, who you know felt most strongly about it. I don't think it's a fair reflection of the general uh, kind of public perception. 
but it certainly has informed the debate or influenced the debate at the moment. Um, so I think we're going to see e-scooters um, come in in Ireland uh, and, you know, continue to rise in other cities. But I think they're going to be subject to an awful lot of um, oversight and, you know, some kind of pushback, which is no harm, but also an awful lot of safety initiatives and changes have been brought in. It is a new emerging kind of technology uh, and the changes that take place in the space of 12 months are kind of startling. So sometimes when I hear people say, oh, but, you know, this or that, that was three years ago. That is a completely different kind of service to what's now being provided. So I think changes will continue to happen. I think there is a little bit of um, caution or con- not concern, but uh, hesitation in, in some quarters around scooters, I think that will be overcome uh, as they get rolled out and, and people see the kind of difference between a 2019 offering and a 2023 offering. Um, and I, I think ride hailing will continue to grow. Uh, we're one of some of our biggest uh, markets are in Africa, across uh, the African continent. We have a, a, a good few really growing markets where Ride hailing is just an absolutely essential uh, form of transport for people where maybe public transport options aren't as good. It's also an essential form of um, source of income for our drivers. Um, and that's something we're really proud of. Um, and, you know, I think we, you and I talked before about autonomous vehicles. And I, I suppose I that's probably something that I don't see in the kind of near to, to medium term for, for Bolt and for ride hailing generally. I think... Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of unknowns in that area. And so I think ride hailing will continue to be predominantly um, a a source of income for the drivers and an area of growth uh, across Europe and Africa. Well, thanks very much for your time, Ashley. That's been really interesting. And your best luck with your ongoing work with Bolt. Uh, It's a really interesting time for micro-ability in Ireland and generally speaking. So thanks again. Thanks very much for having me. 